everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Tyler Gossett Podcast. Today, we've got an awesome one, Dr. John Mullins. He's a board-certified anti-aging physician, and he's the founder of Marshall Lifestyle Medicine. So I'm sitting down with Dr. Mullins today to discuss living longer, healthier lives, um, and some exciting advancements in the medical horizon. I think it's a really, really great discussion. Please welcome Dr. John Mullins. All right. Well, Dr. Mullins, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Well, I want to start off real quick. So I'm going to give my uh, quick disclaimer. So we're about to get into uh, anti-aging medicine, some some cool things that are coming out on the horizon in the uh, medical community. But of course, I am not a doctor. A physician of any kind, kind of an idiot. So, and then, but you are a doctor. However, anything we're going to talk about, it does not constitute necessarily medical advice for you, the listener. There's no uh, doctor-patient relationship that's been established. So, definitely want to speak to your primary care physician and your your doctor before you start anything or change up anything. But. That being said, we've got some great stuff to talk about today. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in. And just to, just to follow up with what you just said, I think sometimes listening to these type of podcasts like you have might spur some, um, some of your audience to kind of give this some thought. And they, they may find that when they do bring up these topics with their doctor, they may know a little bit more even than they do. This is so, right. so cutting edge that I think you have to come prepared with questions and very specific questions to discuss with your doctor if you would like to live optimally or to discuss manners in which you might be able to manage your aging. Yeah, it's a good way to kick this off because right now, United States, it's called the healthcare system, but you could really call, and I've heard it been called the sick care system because people are really focused on going to their physician when they're sick. It's not living optimally, as you say. It's not, um, you know, what can I do to prevent aging to prevent myself disease uh, risk factors even recognize risk factors a lot of times well I, you're, you're completely right we are we're living in within a reactive medical system and we're very good and probably the best in the world at reacting to illness unfortunately we have so much of it that there's no foreseeable end to it but where medicine fails is it really has never been set up nor has it ever really have an infrastructure in place to treat people that are healthy Right. It really is not set up for that. And you'll find yourself, a lot of the patients that come to see me, and I was one of those patients prior to opening my office, is not being sick leaves you without a home. Right. Because uh, it, even words that were used like wellness or well-being or preventive medicine really weren't. They, yeah. In fact, I don't like to even use the words because they were such an abysmal failure that to follow in those, using those same terminology, I feel like lumps me into the failed nature of preventative medicine, which is which is not helpful. Right. The advancements that's, that have been made recently and over the last maybe decade and continue to um, to advance, there's a lot of physicians that just get stuck in that this is the way we did it, and they don't they don't go and, and look at, hey, what's the next step? What's coming out? I know I sat, sat down with a physician a few years ago and was asking them about, I was doing just a, a regular checkup, and they said, okay, well, we'll do your blood work. I said, well, what, what blood work are you going to do? A question probably that a lot of people wouldn't even ask. They're just mm-hmm. like, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, we're going to do a standard lipid panel. And I asked him, well, you know, I'm I'm reading some stuff that says, hey, the standard lipid panel is maybe not the best marker for uh, your risk of, of heart disease. You know, what about 
ApoB or LP little a, LP mm-hmm. particle size and some things like that. And he's just kind of like brushed it off like, oh, this guy probably listened to Dr. Oz or something. <laughs> and then went on down and said, no, I'm not going to order that for you. There was no discussion about it at all. And I think that um, that was the eye-opening experience for me um, to say, okay, well, maybe I need to break out of what the traditional um, healthcare system does and kind of look look for a physician that goes beyond that and um, really has, you know, cutting edge science and stuff mm-hmm. in mind. Yeah, and and I, having been a member of the medical community for a long time, medicine really discourages people that are outliers. Yeah. Outliers, physicians, it's really you're somewhat ostracized when you're thinking outside the, the, the norms and, and having now being practicing in this manner for the last four or five years, I, I feel it. I see it every day. If you're thinking or doing things that were you were not taught or the masses were not taught or in a conventional manner, it do, it really discourages doctors to be forward thinking because you know you're going to have to be – you're going to be criticized yep. and, and generally by people that have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're just falling back on what the what they've always done and medicine is always – I think from the beginning of time is always 25 to 30 years behind. Right. Even the research, yeah. it's behind that far. Yeah, and then once that research actually gets – When it catches up, right. a lot of doctors have then been uh, – you know, some of the people that were celebrating these days were had ideas – 30 years ago that were just rejected flat out by a medical community that have been shown to be actually absolutely true. Yeah. And and I think some of the things we're going to be talking about today have been around for a long time. Some right. of the stuff that we're going to talk about, these medicines and some of these things have been around for a long time. They just have not been accepted in the in the conventional medical world. And when I when I like I like to talk about my clinic being the future of healthcare. I don't mean that we are the world's greatest health uh, facility in the in the world, <laughs> right. but I do believe that we're thinking in terms of what is what does the future of healthcare look like yeah or what should it look like because to continue on with the status quo i think is insufficient Mm -hmm. and i don't want to be a part of something that is stagnating and 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 archaic in nature and flintstonian in some respects i think the average doctor if you asked them why do you prescribe statin medications wouldn't would not be able to give you an answer right they would say because that's what i was told to do Mm -hmm. but usually by a a pharmaceutical sales rep right they have no idea well that's one of the things i want to touch on as well because you know in your practice you use peptides. So um, a peptide, as I understand it, is it's it's basically a chain of amino acids. Mm-hmm. So it falls short of an actual, a lot of times, something you can actually patent right. in, the, in the pharmaceutical community. So I feel like they're overlooked oftentimes. They are currently, and, yeah. and, and they're basically very small proteins. And mm-hmm. their, their amino acid sequence is generally so small that it doesn't, um, it doesn't rise to the level of, of, of a large molecule, like you said, that is patentable. But we've found that the human body alone has more, mainly 10,000, 11,000 small proteins that we had absolutely no idea what they did. Right. Until, until recently, in the last 20 years, people have started to identify small things. We had no idea why we, our stomach was able to survive in an acidic environment without eating itself until mm-hmm. we discovered that there are the math- mechanism by which it acted. And oftentimes it was because of these small peptides that allowed for these collagen type of barriers that exist that allowed us to protect ourselves. And that's just an example. And that one I use, I use frequently. That's BPC-157. Yeah. We've taken that and expanded that into lots of other worlds because we know that it, it's such a, it plays such a critical role in collagen synthesis that we're using it more for orthopedic purposes right now because mm-hmm. it's just it's just profound. But I think the world of peptides Peptide therapy is in its infancy, and and uh, and I hope we get a chance to talk about all the unique peptides that are out there because they all play a critical role, in my opinion, in age management. And they're, in my opinion, they're not meds. Yeah, they're not medications. They they really don't pose a lot of adverse side effects. 
I consider them just adjunctive tools, mm-hmm. some things that are already present in our body that we're just kind of resynthesizing or at least enhancing somewhat yeah. and then giving back. And I, I would – when someone says I'm on 20 peptides, I consider that no meds. That's just like taking 20 supplements <laughs> right. in my opinion. Yeah. In my well, opinion. And so a lot of those, what they do, they signal your body to produce or upregulate certain things, having your body create the uh, – the yeah. compounds that you're they were things that are already there they're yeah. just as age age is hormone decline and peptide decline in the setting of a lot of other oxidative processes that happen so a lot of things that we're talking about right now are the opposite of that it's hormone regulation hormone rebalancing peptide synthesis adding new peptides to basically just kind of I don't think God is in his wisdom wanted us to live a whole lot longer than 50 or 60 years old. And I think that's why everything starts to kind of degrade yeah. kind of in that same ballpark uh, age range. And so peptides just modulate what was already working very well when we were younger and gets it to work very well again as we're older. And hence the aging process is slowed. Yeah. So let's t- dig in a little bit to what you do in your practice for anti-aging for your patients maybe what their goals might be and how you how you accomplish those. Sure. Well, I you know, we're going to talk a lot about peptides and and some of these other things, but I I believe wholeheartedly the number one thing that a person or persons can do is 100% things they can control and those are their lifestyle behaviors. Right. And and uh, I don't think it's been emphasized nearly enough when we talk about preventative medicine or wellness or things of that nature. And some of the th- companies have tried to put wellness programs together. They've almost universally failed. Mm-hmm. But it, at our office, the, if I, in my opinion, if a per- once a person can master their own lifestyle behavior, and I generally have 12 different characteristics that I, I look at when I'm talking to someone, once they've mastered that, I think 80, that's 80% of aging. Yeah. Is what we choose to do to ourselves. 80% of chronic disease is 100% preventable by lifestyle modification. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, diet and exercise, sleep. Stress management. Stress management. And then I have a whole whole other slew of things that I think some people fail to recognize their importance. It's the idea of connectedness and interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. and having balance in your life. And I see a lot of executive level men and women that come to see me that are frankly out of balance. They're very successful in life at great cost to themselves yeah. because I think they discount the role that having a balance and where everything is in harmony, like an orchestra where you're, you're exercising, you're finding time to connect with your wife, with mm-hmm. your kids, with your friends, with God and spiritual spirituality, making sure your finances are in order, not living outside your means, mm-hmm. having all these things in balance, not just seeing how much money you can make. I think right. some people, that is their first, second, third, fourth, and fifth goal. And I think if you asked them on their deathbed, if they if they were happy with the way they live their life, I think the universally they would feel they wish they had more time. Right. No one's ever going to say, I wish I would have worked more. Yeah, you can't take it with you. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I try to really discourage people from thinking in those terms because I really do think that is where uh, when the guys that come and girls that come in to see me that have, have, have the onset of chronic disease, it's all almost always universally self-imposed. Right. And so I think that I have to lead with that, which is why I called my office Lifestyle Medicine, Martial Lifestyle Medicine, because lifestyle plays such a critical role in how we age. Mm-hmm. And if you want to live optimally, it's all within your hands. It may not always be intuitive, even for very bright people, how to do that. In fact, I find sometimes the, the smarter people are, the less intuitive it is because they're so focused on what they're they're very good at, which hence why they're so successful, and that they lose sight of the fact that the smaller things in life are equally important and they really do play a critical role in where you and how you really want to feel and, and live optimally. And so I, I really spend a lot of time with my patients just talking about that in general. 
Yeah. And then once we've mastered that, then it's moving on to the next. Yeah. And, and when I say master, I say that tongue in cheek because you, you don't really ever master. Yeah. At least you focus on it and you, you know, get better. But um, I think that's, that's right there is something that uh, I'm not sure many physicians, you know, are, are focusing on. It's just, well, they don't have time. To what do medication it. can I get you on? They, they don't have yeah. time for that. It's whatever symptom you have, there's a test and there's a pill. Yeah. And really that's about the amount of the time that they have to do it. My concept, I think the future of healthcare also is more going to lend itself to these kind of niche kind of boutique practices like my own where maybe people are paying out of pocket, but I think they get great value if they could actually, if their emphasis is they want to live as long as they can, as healthy as they can. And it's, and they look at that as an expense that they're willing to pay in order to live like that and not get caught up in what's the insurance paying, what not paying. If you live your life optimally, oftentimes you don't even have to take participate with your insurance. Right. You don't need it. Yeah. You might need it for something catastrophic, but in reality is to spend the kind of money that people are paying to go to our office, I think it saves them money 10 times over right. in the long run if they kind of work on some of the things that we try to teach them. Mm-hmm. What are your recommendations or what are some of the things that are coming down the pike that, that they can do to try to optimize their life, their living, increase their longevity? Well, like I've said, a lot of things about lifestyle related, everybody does better the closer we can get to keep getting them to and maintaining them at an optimal body weight. Mm-hmm. So it's with rare exception, does some, anybody come to my office that is completely with happy with the way that their body is? And, and, and I get that. And you know what? I'm frankly glad that they do come for that. So we spent a lot of time just trying to, to, to work on all the different issues. And men and women are very different when it comes to this. Guys that are overweight, they eat too much. Girls that are overweight, oftentimes it's, it's, it's metabolic. Maybe they're eating incorrectly, but oftentimes their metabolism is slowed to such a degree that they can't calorie strictly enough in order to maintain a weight where they're, they're, so they feel optimal. what causes that? Is that the yo-yo diet? Is that the just aging? I think it's uh, at its basis. It's hormonal. Yeah. Uh, women are, you know, we, women can give birth as early as their early teens and they're ovulating. And when they start to ovulate at a, at a different pace and their hormones just change in small, small, seemingly unrecognizable ways, because we, even when we're checking women's hormones, we're only checking them at a moment in time. You, you really have to follow women and check their hormones daily or even hourly to see really what's happening. And since that's unrealistic, you can tell it's happening because women all that come to see me report it. Something happened in the last year. Nothing I've done has changed. And suddenly I've gained 20 pounds. I can't sleep. My stress level's through the roof. Uh, my libido has changed. And I know, my hair quality's changed. My, something's happened. And it's and I've seen it so many hundreds of times now. It is some, it's a phenomenon. And and I really believe that when you start looking into the, the women, uh, women's hormones, and I'm seeing men and women that are coming in at an earlier and earlier age. I think the literature is, again, 20 years behind on what constitutes hypogonadism for men. I think it's equally and even further behind when it constitutes what hormone imbalance is for women. And yeah. so I spend a lot of time focusing on what their hormones mean, look like and what that means. Yeah, when, when they look at those ranges that, for anything but hormones or any range that they put out there, they're looking at the average population. Well, the average population is eating a mm-hmm. junk diet, you know, high fat diet. They're not exercising. They've got all these other risk factors. Mm-hmm. Then maybe that range isn't probably the optimal range, right? Well, that range is arbitrary. Yeah. I think the range that was established for thyroid, for instance, was based upon a subset of medical students 
that was in one class and they drew a labs on all of them and they said, therefore, that must be a representative sample of the whole world. Right. That is true. Not a big enough. End. It hasn't really changed since then, that wow. initial study. And when the, when talking about testosterone, for instance, when the range of normal is so broad that it's 300 to 1200. Right. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. When the range of normal for a woman's testosterone is 2 to 45, does that mean you're abnormal if you're 1? Right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But that was just an arbitrary thing. And there are and, uh, there are ideal levels. And, and it's, what's interesting is what's ideal for one person isn't always ideal for someone else. Right. And that is true. Yeah. And so, again, as a doctor, we have to be careful with this because when people hear the word testosterone, they equate that with bodybuilders. Right. And – or with – clinics that have even focused on people that are interested in bodybuilding. Right. And, and so the Balco guys. They, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're lumped into that just right. initially, just by the word you're, is testosterone a steroid? Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean it has to be a negative thing, mm -hmm. but it scares a lot of doctors and they're just unfamiliar with, with it. Just like as I was four, five or six years ago. And, and so you really, it's a niche in this whole world of hormones. Aging is, is a niche because there's no formal, uh, tracked right now, formal training program for people coming straight out of medical school to master it. So a lot of what we're doing right now is kind of on the fly, anecdotal, and then subsets of us are putting together our data and establishing data sets that mean something. And right. and that I think that's why the future of it is once we get this all formalized, we're going to see the intimate connection that occurs between hormone levels, aging, men, women, and, 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 and we talked about peptides. The peptides are in the same thing. They're modulating downstream processes that oftentimes are hormonally driven in a way that we, that are poor, it's poorly understood, mm -hmm. but, but it's real. And we can see that it's real because when people's growth hormone levels go low, they age more quickly. Mm -hmm. When they're optimal, they age more slowly. And it's not just subjective. There's very objective measurements to see your skin thickness changes, your muscle mass, your bone density, your overall sense of well-being. Many, many things happen that are actually measurable. And giving growth hormone doesn't mean we're trying to create the next Barry Bonds. Right. And again, there are doctors that were doing that, hence mm -hmm. Barry Bonds. Right. In my world of anti-aging medicine, the doctors that practice similar to me, we're trying to use growth hormone as a, as a tool to slow down the process of aging mm -hmm. and so that people can live optimally, even if you didn't live longer. Let's, right. just, let's just say that wasn't the end result. We did not live longer. But if we lived optimal – Increase if, the health span even if you don't increase your yeah, lifespan. Yeah. If, if we can live to 90 and we're riding our bike and running and riding on the and laying on the beach at 90 and we die at 91 just as we – we did. We bypassed the nursing home. We bypassed the hip fracture. We bypassed the twenty hospitalizations. And to me, that's more important than trying to extend the lifespan. Just live longer, healthier. Right. So, what are some of the things that you test when when you have a client that comes in? We'll, we'll just kind of break it down into women and men. What do you look for, blood work wise? You know, you mentioned uh, hormone levels. What hormone levels? Thyroid. Yeah, I think a lot of the tests that we do in our clinic are very similar to a lot of the blood tests that are done probably in a conventional doctor's office that you've had done. I think the difference lies in how we interpret the results mm -hmm. in some respects. I don't get terribly bent out of shape over high cholesterol, high triglycerides, because I know that if their lifestyle oftentimes is contributing to it, or it's, there's a genetic basis to it, or it doesn't even matter because um, we've been we've over-talked about cholesterol and triglycerides and its role in, in heart disease and strokes. I think it was overdone, over-popolicized, and, oh, and these medications have been over-prescribed as a result yeah. of it. Well, there's a big movement right now talking about the cholesterol, 
numbers that people are trying to hit and the overprescription of statins. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, I think it, that you're right on with that. It, what's funny is I've seen people that come in that are on statins and they've lowered their cholesterol to such a level that they can no longer make testosterone. Right. And they're exhausted. And they can't. Yeah. Right. And they, just because you suppress it down to nothing, you're, do, you're doing more harm than good when you're doing that. So in some ways, we are less concerned. And in other ways, we're more concerned. In a doctor's office, if your sugar is slightly high, he may say, Hey, your sugar slightly high. I look at that as something very major. Mm-hmm. That tells me a lot about what's going on. That tells me that you're having some cortisol issues, your insulin sensitivity. Is and if left unchecked, you most certainly will become a type 2 diabetic. Well, insulin sensitivity has been kind of paramount in longevity studies. Sure. Absolutely. And Hence the intermittent fasting and the metformins right. and some of the things that we may, we may talk about subsequent in this, in this show is when you start seeing that those early signs, and sometimes it's as early as if the if optimal blood, blood glucose is less than 99, if you see a 100, that's weird. Yeah. They may say they ate it two hours earlier, but you know, your body usually can, can adjust that very quickly. Yeah. So when people come in and says, I just ate, I still sometimes worry. And I generally follow that up with a hemoglobin A1C because if you're catching something, when somebody's just beginning to see the early signs of insulin desensitization, that's when you have to do a full court press and you right. need, you really need to, that's when that patient needs a heart to heart with you. Whatever you are doing needs to be altered in a serious manner, or you will be the person with high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, strokes. Alzheimer's disease, morbidity, and, and I don't think conventional medicine has the time to counsel the patients right. when they see that initial thing and they just say, "Here's a pamphlet." Well, there's 20 other people in the lobby that are yeah. sicker than that, right? And that's 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 the case. That's why medicine isn't set up for healthy people. So, what age do they does someone need to make sure that they're checking that? Well, oral glucose test or whatever you do for that. I think they should be taking checking that in their early 30s. Okay. The average age of the people that come to see me, you know, I do age management and hormone regulation and weight management and I do a lot of other things. I was shocked when anecdotally, just when the statistics came in after the last, first several years we were open, that the average age of the people that did come to see me was 37. Mm-hmm. And it couldn't just be coincidental. Things start happening in there. And so if the average age they come to see me to seek treatment is 37, they should probably start getting checked in, in the manner that we, uh, the manner that I do as early as right around 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Have your hormones checked. Don't just weigh yourself. Get a, get a really, a really involved, you know, we, you've, you, you kind of know with some of the stuff that we have at the office, we're not necessarily looking at your weight. I could care less. I yeah. want to see how much visceral fat you have, yeah. how you're distributed, what's your percent body fat, BMI and some of the other ways, but they check for right. obesity. It really don't make it, aren't true, right. aren't accurate. Lean muscle mass and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so I think those kind of things need to be really start to be addressed as early you know, I guess probably the next time I'm on, I may say this should be done in their 20s. Right. But but I think right now, if I could just get people to start saying at 30 years old, I should really see somebody and get a full medical examination that incorporates not just where I am, but the risk factors based on my genetics, the risk factors based upon a few key markers like my signs of inflammation, my visceral fat, my blood glucose, just and just kind of get a snapshot of where I might be and then extrapolate that to 10 years from now because that's where people come to see me. Right. That's when they're starting to notice symptoms. Yeah. And that's when we start to unwind it. We mentioned fasting, and I think this is one that's getting a lot of um, momentum mm-hmm. um, in controlling, well, number one, in longevity. I know even prolonged fasts, more than 72 hours, Right. there's been um, some pretty cool studies on what it's done to help with autoimmune disease and all Mm -hmm. sorts of things like that and and promote cellular autophagy and help basically help people live a healthier life. Um, What are your thoughts on what's 
what's going on with fasting? Do you recommend that to your clients? Universally. I, I mean, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming, not just in human studies, but in, across the animal kingdom and not just the animal kingdom, but even in the insect world. Fast, having free access to food is a foreign concept that's only been available in the human world in probably in the last hundred years. We've, we've never really truly had free access to food and our bodies are, do not know what to do when we are ingesting breakfast, lunch, dinner with two snacks in between. That is foreign to right. us. I think but what we've it's the evidence is overwhelming that when you calorie restrict 30 40 even 50% you do so regularly you basically slow down a lot of the met, the mitochondrial activity the kind of the things that are to the powerhouses of our of all the cells in our body and that slowing down of the mitochondrial activity reduces oxidative damage and it really prolongs your life and so I some people would say I eat, I do intermittent fasting because I, I never have time to eat when I'm in my office, which yeah. is true, but it actually fits me. And uh, I try to teach all my patients to try to condense their time when they're eating between one and seven, try never to go to bed with a full stomach. Mm-hmm. If you can avoid just that one thing, because going to bed with your full, a full stomach does just precipitates an entire cascade of events that are bad. Yeah. Bad, bad, messes bad. Messes up your circadian rhythm and uh, cortisol goes yeah. through. It just changes everything. So if uh, a lot of the guys that come to see me, that's generally their number one thing. They're usually eat, they're eating too late. They go to bed with a full stomach. It's carb laden and they throw a couple cocktails on top of it. And if they could just stop that one thing and maybe even if they eat the same thing at five o'clock and had those cocktails and go to bed with an empty stomach, they'll lose weight and they'll be happier, healthier, and they'll think more clearly and they'll sleep better. Yeah. And the neuroprotective aspect of fasting it's undeniable. Yeah. It's probably stronger than anything that we have on the market right now for prevention or treatment of Alzheimer's disease is this concept of lower calorie restriction and calorie condense, condensation or condensing through the 24-hour uh, cycle. I think it's more powerful. Yeah, that's what I'm reading too. I, I read up a lot on this, number one, because I'm a total nerd, but also you mentioned genetic, you know, ch- your, your body's genetics and risk factors. You know, I did a test and found out that I'm carrying a 1APOE4 gene. Mm-hmm. And um, so for those listening, there's you. everyone has these two alleles, alleles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of APOE1 you get from each parent. And there's a protective one. If I'm saying anything You're wrong, seeing just it right jumping so far. in here, uh, which is an APOE2 gene. Mm-hmm. And then uh, your average risk would be an APOE3 gene. Mm-hmm. And then if you have an APOE4 gene, that is increased risk for Alzheimer's and uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Mm-hmm. So I have one, which um, those studies I'm reading give me about a 33% increase in the risk of early onset Alzheimer's. So, you know, that's something to me that I try to make sure that I try to limit my exposure to risk. Absolutely. On. And and I think knowing you're, knowing that we're all dealt a deck, right, a, a set of hands, when, when we're born and knowing, knowing the hand you've been dealt as soon as possible in my point, in my opinion is critical because then at least you can't, you know, you know what you're up against and you can start, start designing methods by which you can push back, prevent, you know, if, if you, uh, you may still develop Alzheimer's, but you maybe maybe it's more likely that you, you, you get killed on a ski trip when you're 80 years old right. before you do. And, and you can't prevent that one. But uh, this this idea of Alzheimer's disease, I think the connection between the the frequency of Alzheimer's and um, where we are now as a society based upon 150 years ago, I think is almost all dietary. 
Yeah. I think I really do this free access to food is what's caused type two diabetes, obesity, heart disease, strokes, Alzheimer's disease, and limiting free access to food with intermittent fasting and a carb limited diet is the ultimate my preventative tool right. for the prevention of not just the heart related um more more bit morbid uh, um health conditions, but also the cognitive ones. Yeah. And so I, I really try to spend a lot of time. I have a high, high, high incidence of Alzheimer's disease. My mother just recently passed away at 68. Mm-hmm. My grandmother died at the same age. I've had several aunts and a great-grandmother. So I know it's out there without even checking my alleles. Right. And so that's why I'm so cognizant. I don't smoke. I, I drink in moderation, sometimes more than moderation, but I try to <laughs> limit it. But I also am very interested in the role of diet, exercise, and keeping your brain in that whole idea of neuroplasticity. Yeah. And I think that you, you could see a lot of people that have been very successful in life the second they retire the yep. next year they have alzheimer's yeah. disease yeah, the, you really have to keep it active yeah. and and uh, and i think that's really important well I, I think if there was a pill that had the same results that that you see from time time restricted feeding mm-hmm. it would be <laughs> prescribed you know across the board and be making millions of dollars right so. and if the only one that's even comparable is metformin and yeah. the, and since it's now generic they can't make millions of dollars right. on it but it's been around for gosh it's been around at least 25 years and and you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about yeah metformin. let's go ahead and dig into that it's probably it's probably i think it's probably the fourth most commonly prescribed medication in the mm-hmm. united states maybe even the world and i think we're, it was so, always always prescribed for for diabetes, diabetes once right. you had diabetes right and so it was hard to really study what what else it was doing, but we uh, and I can't remember who stumbled upon it. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. But we the critical role that metformin plays in glucose uh, regulation, insulin sensitivity, and a whole slew of other things that does the mitochondrial level with related to well, basically it does the same thing as intermittent fasting. It 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 inhibits it mimics, mimics fasting basically. It mimics fasting, yeah. and so your mitochondria get to rest because they're not just flooded with this stimulation to go, 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 go. And since it's, 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 it gets to go to, it gets to rest, it gets less oxidative damage. And then there's a whole slew of things that don't happen downstream as a result of putting things at rest, just slowing things down. And you don't feel necessarily slow down. In fact, people that use metformin or, ex, or, or, or use intermittent fasting as a technique actually feel more energetic because they aren't they don't have the the side effects of what happens when you eat a pasta laden right. meal, and what happens when insulin comes and floods all that into your bloodstream and, exactly and into your right. cells. So most people feel good, yeah. and they feel bright, and they feel sharp, and they feel more alive. And so metformin is something that recently I've started prescribing to all my patients. Yeah. The only caveat of that: some people just can't tolerate the medicine. It's, yeah. It causes some GI problems. But if you can tolerate it, you want to take it. Yeah, and I, I actually take metformin, and you know I had. Maybe like the first week, a very small GI issues, like nothing crazy, just like, huh. Eh. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, I've had no issues at all. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I'm sure people react differently, but it's something that I think the, uh, I always do my own liter- uh, my own reading and um, research. And, you know, it's something I think you, you can almost not argue against listening to, uh, I was listening to Peter Atia, Dr. Peter, Peter Atia, and he, he said, trying to figure out, you know, should you take something like this? You need to try to weigh risk and reward. So let's say the risk is like picking up a, a dollar in front of, in front of a tricycle, mm-hmm. very, very low risk. You get hit by a tricycle, you pick up a dollar, uh, versus picking up a, a penny in front of a freight train. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this one, it's such, such a, it's probably the most research drug ever in human history. Mm-hmm. 
and something like that, the risks are very minimal. I've given you the main risk, yeah. GI upset. Right. I mean, it's prescribed for diabetes, for women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome, even in kids in their eight, 16, 17, 18 years old. If, if, you're, if it does not upset your stomach, and oftentimes you said it correctly, it may initially, and then generally it just kind of subsides. Right. And it, really that is the main thing. If you take too much, you can always become hypoglycemic from it. Yeah. But at the doses that I'm prescribing or that you're probably taking, it, def- it typically doesn't do that. Yeah. It typically doesn't do that. And so I – and. I, I like the fact that you're doing this podcast, and I like podcasts uh, similar to this, and and I and I like folks that are nerdy like you, that listen to them, because if you were to bring this topic again into your, if you just walk into your family, he's not going to bring this up, right? And it it requires you to be an informed consumer, and to push your practitioner to read. Medicine is a lifelong learning career. Yeah. We all go to school with the expectations that we're never going to stop, and I think doctors in general. If, if said in a proper way, they want to be brought up to speed. And now they may feel they may feel initially taken aback that you know more than they do. But I promise you they'll probably go home and read about it. And this is a prime example. Metformin is pennies. doesn't cost hardly yeah. anything. Has very I think few my prescription is $4 a month. $4. Has yeah. very few side effects. Has the, the, the evidence is overwhelming for it. People typically even lose weight on it, which is another added bonus. And people feel very good on it. And it's something you can take long term that just doesn't have. I mean, you want to compare that to a statin. I mean, it's not even close. It's not even close. Yeah. So and then one of the one of the things I was reading about metformin that I was going to ask you about. So one of the mechanisms they think for longevity in uh, conjunction with the fasting mimicking um, the insulin sensitivity stuff is the limit uh it limits mTOR. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about mTOR, how that kind of may inhibit muscle? I mean, is it an issue that if you're taking metformin in the doses that you prescribe for longevity, is that an issue in the gym for somebody who, you know, is wanting to try to gain muscle and I don't think of the doses, and I'm very familiar with mTOR and what it does. It does a lot of things, actually. And um, I don't think at the doses that we're prescribing, it's going to limit – it limits muscle growth. I think uh, – and I, I think, again, you kind of use the analogy risk-benefit. I think the benefits that you receive from it so far outweigh that potential thing. Uh, and since so many people that I'm seeing that are on this – let's just say it's a 45-year-old guy that comes in. Most often, he's got low testosterone, too. If he's going to have muscle – muscle wasting or muscle uh-huh. or inability to gain muscle it's most likely going to be from hypogonadism mm-hmm. if once that's corrected and you overcome that i think that the role of taking metformin is 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 minimal yeah. nominal in fact i've never heard had anybody tell me anything otherwise yeah i've not experienced that i just happened to see that and something I was reading the other day i was going to ask you about yeah i think it does it does have the capacity to rim, limit um anabolic effects because it does tend to slow down downstream processes and and obviously muscle growth is an anabolic process but and i think it since it's catabolic in nature it does have the potential to that but i think if you're eating a proper diet and your your hormones are balanced properly and you're exercising properly i think that those those effects are are negligible yeah and um i wanted to also we talked on uh, testosterone trt testosterone replacement or hrt mm-hmm. hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. and Kind of being around a gym, yeah. For <laughs> like I have, you know, you've seen the guys who take that upon themselves without um, mm-hmm. a physician mm-hmm. looking at, hey, blood work. What are we doing here? Is the dosage going to accomplish what you want to do? Is it dangerous or not? Um, and the dosage that that you're doing, and 
I did want to touch real quick on maybe some of the dangers of people trying to take this on without the overview of a physician or the well, that's a that's an interesting question. I give this one a lot of thought. I think more than the dangers that it's imposed on the individual taking the the hormones, and I'll touch upon those in just a second. I think the bigger thing that it's done is it's dissuaded people that truly would have benefited from testosterone replacement therapy because they are truly hypogonadal from seeking treatment because they believe that they are going to be lumped into the same category and look like it's that person and look like that person. Yeah, and I think it's that same reason is why doctors are are reluctant to prescribe it because they feel like they're going to make people that look like that. And when you're giving testosterone in the proper manner, people do not look like that. They do not get estrogen that goes through the roof. They don't get, um, they don't get gynecomastia. They don't look weird. They don't look like caricatures. And I think if, if more than anything, they have ostracized an entire generation of people that would have otherwise benefited from the role of testosterone replacement therapy, either by, by dissuading patients or dissuading physicians from providing it in a manner that is consistent with longevity and optimal living. Right. That's number one. And I see that one a lot. I hear it from doctors and I hear it from patients or wives of patients that don't want their, their, their husbands being treated out of fear that they're going to look like that guy in the gym that they know. Right. The guys that are taking the gym, frankly, if they're using bioidentical testosterone sipionate at high levels, they generally don't hurt themselves. Right. Even at very high doses. Uh, what about like behavioral changes? To be honest with you, I think at very high doses, you may notice some high changes. Most men that are treated with testosterone replacement therapy, even in slightly excessive amounts, typically do not manifest in behavioral changes that are negative. Right. I don't see that. Yeah, and I've seen thousands of men. Yeah. I think there's that roid rage. Don't see it. That, yeah. And um, I think that like I said, villain, it's been villainized mm-hmm. for so long. I don't see it. I've seen a couple guys. I will say this. If you were the kind of guy in high school or college that you, when you went out and all, you were always the kind of guy that drama always found you, you're always the guy that didn't know how they got into a fight at a bar, the guy that just likes to stir up mm-hmm. trouble. If you give guy lots of testosterone in his 40s, don't be surprised if you start acting like the way right. you did when you were in your 20s. Well, and if you're in the gym and you just pounded a, a bunch of pre-workout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. doing heavy deads and you're yeah. like all keyed up, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of aggression may, may be manifested from other things other than maybe uh, testosterone. Yeah, and when you start combining anabolics, which were 100% intended for either the veterinary industry or for certain muscle wasting conditions that have a play a vital role in trying to establish some muscle muscle growth. Those guys are typically not just taking bioidenticals, testosterone, cypionate. They're, they're adding in a bunch of other stuff that are anabolic in nature that do have a lot of side effects because they're not intended really for human use. And, and they're, they're just not – I believe in things that God made us with. Mm-hmm. And when we're replacing things that God made us with, I, you still have to take things with a grain of salt and you have to study it because God in his infinite wisdom did things in a specific way for specific reasons. However, when you start throwing foreign things, well, hell, even some of the stuff we're talking about statins, those things aren't inherent to our bodies. And a right. lot, most every medication that we hit, those weren't, those weren't naturally occurring. When we're talking about peptide therapy, PRP, stem cells, hormone replacement therapy, supplements even, these are things that are naturally occurring and we're just replacing what the natural course of aging has diminished. Yeah. And so I still look at them and I think they have to be medically managed. But when those guys come in from the gym to see me, I'm just thankful that I get an opportunity to say, you know what, just because you can bench 500 pounds doesn't mean you're going to live much longer. Right. 
And yeah. so, because their lifestyle often times, in fact, it could be the opposite. Well, it it will be the opposite because yeah. you can't bench five hundred pounds without ingesting five thousand calories a day. Right. And we've already talked about the role of calorie restriction and and its role in longevity. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, if you're eating properly and you're calorie restricting, you're not ever going to get huge. You that's, can't. That's one hundred percent true. And I think a lot of, especially females, don't understand that. I talked to Emma Montgomery on, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. And she always has women that come to her when she's doing the workouts. She's building them around uh, resistance and weight training. And they're like, well, I don't want to get big. Right. Well, if you're not eating, you know, just slamming protein and BCAAs and you're, Mm -hmm. you know, getting all the calories that you need and then some, you're not going to get to that level. It's It's impossible for a woman. It really, if you see a woman that's big, you're seeing a woman that's on testosterone replacement there. Right. I mean, it's impossible. But and and not only that, just and they're eat, eating eating a and ton of and calories. And they're eating a ton of calories. Yeah, yeah. I think that when you exercise properly, and I think the look that most people are after is more of an athletic look. It's where you have a slim waist, you have low visceral fat, you have nice muscle tone that's symmetric in nature, and I think that is a look that's associated with with uh, biomechanically working properly, still being able to go out and ski and snowboard and right. run and play tennis and play golf. That is a look that is associated with uh, act optimal activity. Yeah. Get, some of these body, they can't would be, scratch their nose. They cannot <laughs> scratch. I mean, they, yeah. they, you, when they get that big, they have sleep apnea that's untreated. Right. They start having a lot of a sequela of other issues that, and it's, and it's not necessarily because of the hormones. It's just the manner in which they took them. Yeah. And if anything could come out of this podcast, and I hope sometime I have um, an opportunity to talk to some some physicians that are coming out of school, I think we we got to get away from being afraid of hormones. Yeah, they're they, they've got a bad rap. They've been prescribed incorrectly by other doctors previously. They've been used incorrectly in other by other individuals that were not prescribed even medically. But I think if used properly, and I think the long term studies are going to be associated with positive results. Yeah. And then also making sure you mentioned the sweet spot, making sure that your clients are in that sweet spot. And it's different. Yeah. It is different from everybody. But one thing I know about testosterone, if some is good, more is not better. Right. And I see people that will argue with me all day long that mm-hmm. they want their levels to go. The only thing it does, well, for, for one, it does a couple things. Your receptors all downregulate. So the things that make you feel good are, are, are minimized. And the only ones that don't downregulate are the skeletal muscle receptors. Mm-hmm. So you can get big as you want, and those are right. the guys in the gym. Yeah. But the, the optimal living things that you're after and the aging things that you're trying to accomplish are, are, are mitigated. Right. And so I try to protect them from themselves. And I think if as a doctor, really, if I'm doing nothing more than that, that's that's really the role of physician in this world is <laughs> yeah. just trying to provide them enough information and protect them from themselves. Yeah. Because if left unchecked, they'll they'll take 10 times as much. Yeah. So looking at a blood panel for somebody that's on HRT, you're going to look at total testosterone mm-hmm. and then what free testosterone think, and what's the difference and, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think most doctors, including me, in the past, all all they did was check total testosterone. And there's so many things that cause what's called your sex hormone binding globulin to go up. Right. So let me see if I got this right. I'm going to test my medical knowledge, okay? Mm -hmm. So so that testosterone, it needs something to carry that through the blood, right? Which would be your sex hormone binding Mm -hmm. globulin. And and a couple other little carrier proteins. But sex hormone binding globulin is the big one. So if that's out of whack, your free testosterone will be out of whack. So your total testosterone doesn't necessarily translate to what you want to accomplish in that scenario. That is, you said, Tyler, you said that exactly proper. All right. I get my gold star. We should always check 
total free bioavailable and the sex hormone binding globulin because a lot of times there's certain things you can do that can affect that sex hormone binding globulin and if there's anything that's not testosterone the raise your testosterone it's that doing things that lower your sex hormone binding globulin right and what would that be diet lifestyle just like uh, American diet, uh, American eating, sleeping, things like, uh, women that take um, synthetic estrogens, they have they birth have control birth, or, oh, yeah. birth control. They have sex hormone body globs that are 10 times the norm that I mean, just you don't have to be a doctor to think that can't be right. That, yeah. Anything that could do that cannot be good for you. And so their free testosterone would be nothing. Their total will be normal. Yeah. And oftentimes it'll even be a, a borderline high. But if you check their free, it's like zero. Right. And the, even the OBGYNs that are managing some of these patients that are on birth control pills do not check it. Mm-hmm. And then they then their their patients come in, they complain that they have no libido, that they have no energy, that they've noticed weight gain, and they don't understand why why it's happening. And I'm telling you, it's hormonal. And the second you get them off the, the birth control pills and you kind of get things going the right way and you get them to use an IUD for birth control purposes, mm-hmm. that's copper-based or, or even a, a progesterone-based IUD, they improve. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's so that has to be checked. So I would call anybody on the listening audience that's going to go see their doctor, ask them for a to, a, a comprehensive testosterone panel. Right. I think that uh, the, your doctor will know how to check your CBCs and CMPs, looking at your blood sugar, your kidney function, your liver function, your red blood cell counts. He probably will not know that you should probably check your estrogen level because men and women, it's a hormone that both men and women uh, obviously possess. An elevated estrogen level is an independent risk factor in men for heart disease. Right. And it should be checked. And if you see that it's excessive, it should be a it should be a warning sign that something's going on, and it's oftentimes a weight issue that needs to be addressed. And they yeah. have a very they have a very robust aromatase uh, enzyme. You, you and think, they, do you think that's causal for um, heart uh, issues, or do you think it's representative of a lifestyle that's? That's a great question. Um, we don't know for sure. And uh, is it cause and effect? It's it's certainly. I could. I don't think anybody can say it's causative. I think it's correlative, right? Because I don't think there's anybody. But it's certainly, it's a, it's a, it's like when you have a fire. There's always firemen there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's the firemen, <laughs> right? And it's, it does seem to go. And so when I see somebody has an elevated estrogen, that means they have a lot of visceral fat because that's where the aromatase enzyme lives. And again, it should be a warning sign. And if you have a lot of estrogen, it's going to compete with your your testosterone. So oftentimes, your hypogonadal. With elevated estrogen, with visceral fat and central obesity, probably have genetic risk factors in your family for diabetes, heart disease, strokes, et cetera. And that should be a warning sign that we've got to do a comprehensive approach to get this under, get going the right direction. Yeah. I think, I think that that right there is, is what a lot of people miss when it comes to testosterone replacement therapy is looking at it in a comprehensive way and how other things move. Um, yeah. With that. If I wanted to be known as I, – I believe that hormones play a critical role. I really do. And, and, and people that come to see me oftentimes want to talk about the hormones. If I wanted to be known as a, as a hormone clinic, I probably would have called myself Marshall Testosterone Medicine right. or something. But I didn't. I think it plays an adjunctive role in an overall scheme of optimal living and aging properly. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about peptides. Okay. Um, I really wanted to kind of pick your brain on this and some of the peptides that you use. You mentioned um, growth hormone mm-hmm. and and its role on anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Can you dig in a little bit to when do we start seeing that horth, hor- growth hormone decline? What does that translate to for your patients? What does that look like from their perspective? How do they feel and look and perform? And then how do you counteract that natural decline in growth hormone? Well... 
Um, I think that checking uh, and should you? I, well, I think that uh, there's varying opinions on this, and and I'm you know I'm forming my own as through the process of practicing medicine. I tend to check what's called an IGF one on most people that come into my office. However, I typically do not react to the to the to the numbers unless somebody is is either in their late mid to late thirties or or right around the forty year age or forty year age group. And IGF one for the listening audience is the end product growth hormone is secreted from your pituitary gland in very small minute bursts that pulses. are that are very pulses and yeah. very small. And that's again, God was a smart guy, and he knew what he was supposed to be doing. And um, he, you pulse at certain times of the day when you're sleeping, when you're fasting, and when you're exercising. And it's very small pulses at a specific timed events that are there for a specific reason to aid in, in regeneration, repair of damage that will either be ensuing or has has accumulated through the course of the day and should be repaired while you're in the sleeping process. And so growth hormone, just like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and in some cases, even thyroid are age related in the sense that they're in melatonin, which is also one. They decline with age because, again, probably in our ancestry, people, more people died from infectious disease before they ever made it to 50 years old. So growth hormone deficiency wasn't a big deal. Since the advent of modern medicine, now we're starting to see the effects. So I check IGF-1 and probably start to react to it around the 38 to 40 year range. And it, and I use it as, again, as another indicator and an adjunctive tool in a broader scheme. Growth hormone without exception does slow down the aging process and does aid in regenerative repair of injuries and cells that are um, having damage that we aren't even aware are happening. And this has been proven time and time again. There's been more studies done on growth, the effects of growth hormone replacement therapy than probably any other hormone that exists. And they're all almost exactly the same. Now, I have people that come in and ask me, doesn't growth hormone cause cancer? That's just a hypothesis. Yeah. There's been no study that's ever shown that. And, and you know, can, it may actually, so as I understand it, it's not going to cause any cancer, but any cancer that you have, it could help maybe it proliferate. Maybe it, it modulates its growth. Yeah. Its growth. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, that sounds right in theory, but that's not even been proven. Right. None of that's been proven. In fact, it's only been studied, to, shown to actually even be possibly true in a rate in a in a rat study, and that was done you know ten or fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. So again, hypotheses aside, the effects of growth hormone and the objective signs and subjective things that people feel when they take it are are uh, are have been proven time and time again in multiple studies of large numbers of people. That being said, I'm not the biggest fan of using growth hormone as itself. And there's, I just, I, I'm not, I don't think that God, again, if he wanted us to make big boluses of growth hormone, that's how he would have made us. Right. And when people are taking growth hormone, that is what they're doing. They're taking a big bolus at one time of the day. And they're, and I think it does have un, undeniable catabolic effects where it comes to muscle growth and some things, uh, weight loss, slimming down, et cetera. But it, it is certainly not physiologic to do it that way. The advantage of the peptides, and again, I don't usually even think about peptide therapy and growth hormone until a person's around 40. Right. It modulates the the amplitude of the pulse that your pituitary is doing naturally, and it, it, ampli- it increases the amplitude of your pulse in a very physiologic manner, in a very natural way. And so you're really just getting more the same amount of growth hormone you were getting when you were younger, but it's in the same frequency in the same manner, very natural. And to me, that sounds way superior to giving a big bolus of growth hormone. Yeah. So what peptides do you uh, look at for 
um, for that. There seems like there's a new one every day. <laughs> right. it, it really does. And yeah, I think I anybody that wants to either be a nerd like Tyler or a doctor. <laughs> come join uh, Come join the nerddom. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it's fascinating. If you're going to be a nerd, this is a fun one to be because yeah, yeah. The, the, the cumulative amount of knowledge that's being – accumulated in the anti-aging world is doubling every 77 days. You have to be a super nerd, almost like a, a Superman nerd in order to keep up with it. I'm in it and I can't hardly keep up with it. But just to name off a few of the ones that are being used most commonly recently, uh, CJC 1295 is one that I use a lot. Yeah, It's uh, it, I, it's predictable for me. I know its side effect profile, which are m- minimal. It's it's predictable with respect to the response that, that the patients experience. There were uh, – name off a few others. There's GHRP2, GHRP6, Tessamorelin, Samorelin, mm-hmm. Ipamorelin. Lately, I've been using one that's called IGFLR3, which okay. is kind of interesting in its own right because it's, it's not modulating the growth hormone release. It's actually the end product of growth hormone that is formed in the liver. And it has a – they've added a few amino acids to it, thereby increasing its 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 uh, half-life in our, in our blood. And lately, I've been using that one because you can take it without having to correspond with your fasting level or your fasting lifestyle. And for people that are really busy, sometimes they miss doses because they miss – they they, they – they can't. They, so is it is it a longer lasting pulse or how does that work? It is a longer acting IGF one. It's just half life is longer. It's longer. It's longer, and so the effects and and you would think that that sounds like in theory the same thing as taking excess growth hormone, but but it's not because just growth growth hormone controlled release. Mm-hmm. It is, and the growth hormone has a has a lot. Anyway, it's not the same. And uh, but lately I've been using that, and there's some oral versions of peptides that sometimes I use called MK677. Even subeltropin has some some peptide responses that is taken orally, and it's that's extracted from the um, Elkhorn Velvet, and they've just kind of condensed it into a frankly a, a, an almost unpalatable liquid form that yeah. you ingest daily. But it does possess in, in addition to uh, the peptides. Is it, it the same as deer antler spray that you would hear from, from like uh, PED? I, it's probably talk. similar. Yeah. Although anything that you buy over the counter that says it's going to raise your growth hormone <laughs> is a scam. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. It's or, a scam. Or from China on online. That we actually could, may even be whole, right, but you don't know. You don't know. We you could c- do a whole podcast on potential yeah. – uh, problems with that and you can get stuff cheap and and some people i mean if cost is your only variable that you're going to consider then you go to china but you remember you're injecting this in your body yeah (laughs) so again these are the bodybuilder world oftentimes that are just trying to they don't really care as long as they think that it'll make them bigger and again that's that i don't think that's the math though i don't want people like that in my life yeah but that's not the average uh, no i want the nerds i want the people that come to me like you or anybody like you tyler that come to me and they've done some research and then we can have an intelligent conversation and and since right now anti-aging medicine is relatively new, it's in its infancy, the nerds are in it. Yeah. And I love it. So what do you think about stacking some of those? If you stacked any of those uh, peptides, peptides and, and if so, what's your stack look like for anti-aging? Oftentimes before I start uh, a growth hormone releasing peptide, I'll oftentimes start with BPC-157 and TB-500. Th- those right. are both collagen synthesizing um, peptides that yep. work fantastic. So sometimes that'll give them the necessary building blocks to do cell repair. Then you throw the growth hormone re- uh, releasing peptides. In my personal bias, I think you should you should change your growth hormone releasing peptide at least every four to six months while taking at least a one-month pause to kind of de- allow your receptors to kind of upregulate again. Yeah. So I oftentimes will move them around. 
I'll start with CJC 1295, go for four months. Then I'll switch to a Samorlin Ipamorelin blend. And then after that, I may switch to a Tesmorelin, or then I may switch to an IGFLR3. And my super nerdy patients, we do this all the time. We're always switching. We're always moving. Yeah. And, and the effects are very subtle. And oftentimes people get discouraged because they don't see anything immediately, but it doesn't work that way. Right. Just like aging doesn't happen overnight. Anti-aging yeah. doesn't happen overnight either. It's a very slow process. And sometimes you need the positive affirmation of seeing something you haven't seen in a while to recognize that it has done something yeah. because the effect is so gradual. Your skin improves, your hair improves, things that you, you don't recognize because you're looking at yourself in the mirror all the time, or you just don't get sick. You just right. feel good all the time. And how do you, how do you gauge that? How do you, how do you, how do you, um, how do you measure you feel good all the time? Right. Yeah. You, you, you need somebody like me or doctors like me that see go, thousands go of to people. reunion uh yeah that's why <laughs> yeah oh yeah that's an eye-opener go go, high school reunion. yeah go you'll see you'll see how much better you're doing than your colleagues man this person's lived a rough life absolutely yeah. i want to talk a little bit about some of the regenerative peptides mm-hmm. and also what you're doing in your office for because i know there's a lot of athletes that you work with mm-hmm. around regenerative medicine mm-hmm. stem cells prp we uh, could have an entire podcast. Yeah, we'll do this one day. We'll and, come I, back and I hope and we can because yeah. I, I, I am fascinated by the future and what the future holds for the world of regenerative medicine. Yeah. I think it's going to do for the orthopedic industry what cardiac stents did for cardiothoracic surgery. The day of people having these advanced um, joint replacements, I think, are going to yeah, be— Yeah, they're going away. It really is. It, it's fascinating. And instead of using Kenalog and some of these longer-acting steroids that have been shown to cause joint degradation, these PRP, which is your natural blood, spun down, taking off the growth factors, I am absolutely intrigued. In fact, I could probably, if if, if somehow I had the, everything taken away from me at my office and I said I was only allowed to practice regenerative medicine, I think I'd be happy. Right. It's fascinating. And there's plenty of people that need it. Well, there is, and if you, it's, uh, I, I, I joke about it all the time. If you squirt PRP up in the air and you just run under it, wherever it touches you, it's going to do something positive. And, and I mean, anywhere it touches you, we use it for sexual health, we use it for hair, we use it for aesthetics, we use it for orthopedic purposes, we use it for tendinopathies, we use it for Achilles plantar fasciitis, <laughs> we use it for uh, countless things, and we really only broached the surface of what else it can do. Right. It is fascinating. So, um. Real quick, the mechanism of PRP. So what you're doing is you're taking blood from your patient, uh-huh. and then you said you spin, you spin it out, you, you separate the plasma. You take out all the red blood cells. Uh-huh. You don't need those. You want just what's called the platelet-rich plasma, which carries all the growth factors and omits anything that could potentially uh, uh, cause an inflammatory response, the red blood cells. And then once it's in its purified state, and there's not all people doing PRP are going to have equal results because not all of the purifying methods used are equal. The people that are using the better filters and the better centrifuges have have a higher quality PRP to inject. And I yeah. see this oftentimes. It should look like straw, cloudy straw. And you take that and you, so you're using your own blood. So therefore there's no risk of communicable disease transmission. And then you're just using that to treat a variety of modalities. Yeah. And it's- And you add an active- an activator of some sort, right? Like, yeah, there's there's an activator in there that just what well, we use couple, calcium chloride. Calcium chloride is is added in there as well. And like I said we use it. I use it every day. I did it two times today in the office, um, and both of them were for sexual reasons. And we could have another whole show on just the role of sexual health in right. the future of healthcare. Um, I believe that uh, people are so 
We talked about let's be- let's take real quick the mystification on what how is this what are you doing on this uh, for the sexual reasons? Well, you know, I used to I used to I used to uh, kind of um, uh, where's this st- going? I used doc? to I used to stop <laughs> I used to, I used this? to walk uh, on toe to- uh, uh, tiptoes uh, when I talked about it. Now right. I've done so many of them. Yeah, I, just go for it. Well, so. It is exactly what you think. When people that are having difficulty with their sex life, men, you know what it is. That's your penis. Women that are having trouble achieving orgasm or having a meaningful sexual um, uh, experience, it's it's primarily related to their clitoral region. And we're drawing their blood. Yeah. We're centrifuging it down and we're injecting it, which sounds like Super it could be painful. Some, but it's not. <laughs> it's not. And, and, I, and, I, and I can say that now because I've done several, 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 several hundred of them. Yeah. And it's the only thing I can say in healthcare that I've ever done that I have never had a failure. And I can't say that about anything, zero. But you inject that, you wait a week, and the results related to that particular injection will re-stimulate and do things in a way that are, no other medication can, nothing else can. And uh, and I'm and again, I'm fascinated. And now the, recently we've started adding stem cells to those, which uh-huh. are in an attempt to ag- increase the amplitude of the effect and prolong the effect um, length of time. And so I've done several of those recently. And so now the jury's still out on what it's doing. Cause I'm waiting. Cause yeah. hopefully I won't see these individuals for several years. Uh-huh. PRP when done generally requires a repeat every 10 to 12 months because that's the effect length of time. Yeah. And, well, it, and I want people to know that it should, it's, they shouldn't be going. Ugh. Yeah. I want people to to think about this. Sex life is important for a relationship. Yeah, it's part of your general health. For I sure. think so. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, and people are embarrassed to talk about it. Right. Even the doctors are embarrassed. Right. Well, embarrassed that's why I said let's just throw it out there. We might yeah. as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It's um, it's a it's a big part of of your well being and and a big part of you know why people I think oh I'm old you know. Th- that's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I hear that now. one all the time. I yeah. said, I know I'm getting older. It's it's like a disclaimer statement. Yeah, you don't have to. And I hear this when people are in their 30s or even 20s. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're getting – we're all getting older. That's just a fact. But you do not have to feel the way you do. There are methods and means by which you can cha- you can suspend, slow, or even reverse this aging process. And I've done this now long enough to see it. I've seen too many too many success stories, and the ones, frankly, that have been not success stories, it's just because we we were not able to successfully modify their behavior, yeah, their lifestyle. The, yeah. the meds work. They got to want it. They you, you have to want it you, as well. You have to want it, and and oftentimes people get distracted with their life, and then they fall off the wagon. And when they fall off the wagon, they fall off hard, yeah. and and hopefully they come back, and we can get them going again. And that's the beauty of this: is just because you failed once doesn't mean you shouldn't try again. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great topic there to end on. Dr. Mullins, I wanted to thank you again for coming in and sitting down and talking. We could go literally for like four hours. We could dig into the peptides and stuff, but maybe we'll come back and sure. uh, and get a little bit more technical on some of this stuff. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. And Tyler, I really like what you're doing. I, yeah. I know I've, I think you got a good thing going here and, uh, and I, it's my pleasure to come in and participate anytime you want me. All right. I appreciate it. Well, tell the people where they can find you. You got uh, Marshall Lifestyle Medicine, I think is Marshall Medicine on Instagram. Yeah, um, it is, and it's uh, it's marshallifestylemedicine.com, and you can call this. I, I agreed to come on here, not because I was trying to get uh, my for a sales opportunity, but if anybody wants to talk, I generally don't charge for consultations. And again, it's Marshall Lifestyle Medicine. We're over in Hamburg and Lexington. I do have some satellite clinics out and about, so feel free to call us anytime if you'd like to sit down and chat. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Mullen. Hey, thank you, Tyler. Thanks for listening to the Tyler Gossett Podcast. If you liked it, do me a favor and subscribe and drop me a review. You can also hit me up at... Tyler Gossett Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.